Chuck and Julie, bringing you the truth straight up. I'm Julie Hagan. I'm working at- an Emmy-winning former investigative reporter, a highly successful trial attorney, and publisher of a major Denver area newspaper. They've been partners as talk show hosts and in marriage as parents for over 10 years, providing thought-provoking information, opinion, and entertainment live, local, and interactive. Everyone's voice is always welcome on the Chuck and Julie Show. Welcome. It's Party Friday on the Chuck and Julie Show. Obviously, there's no Chuck and there's no Julie. It's just me, Mark Poff guest hosting for them as they let me do every once in a while and i really appreciate them letting me do this it's a nice change of pace for me and all the stuff that i do i am a retired detective i used to work for the el paso county sheriff's office down here in el paso county colorado and now i'm a consultant an expert in cellular technology and other forms of digital forensics and i travel around and testify and work on cases throughout Colorado and the country. I've worked everywhere from Alaska to New York City. So I've worked on a lot of cool cases and stuff. And this is Truth Straight Up. In fact, I forgot to fire up so I can see participants and put the chat up there so I can see that. John St. Augustine, my counterpart, will be coming on at about 315 to 320. Just for some of you, some of you who may not know John St. Augustine to introduce him. John has been in law enforcement for a long, long time. Like me, he retired. We are now predominantly working for defense attorneys, but we will work for anybody because the truth is the truth. And I always say the truth picks no sides. So we typically stick to the truth. We stick to um, what is the facts when it comes to technology? He's more into crime scenes. He was actually the commander of investigations at the El Paso County Sheriff's Office when he departed law enforcement to do the consulting gig with myself. So we've been doing that for about nine years now. In fact, it'll be nine years for me today. Um, I retired from the El Paso County Sheriff's Office nine years ago on October, well, Friday, the second weekend of October. I don't know if it was also the um, Friday the 13th, which is what it is, you know, so everyone should be concerned about that. But John and I are going to be talking about um, John Benet and some other things. Like I've told some people, John St. Augustine was hired by the Ramses because they thought they were getting a raw deal with the Boulder Police Department, which is obvious that they were. And I've talked in the past about you got to follow the facts of the case not who you think did it. Now, a lot of times it's the same person and that's okay, or the same people. So that's okay. You follow the truth. It leads to the person that you think is the suspect. So, but before he gets on here, I take a a few minutes to kind of get into my, um, the ability for me to release all of my political anxiety about what's going on. I'm not a very political person at all. I'm pretty laid back. I'm pretty much about the facts, following the science, you know, things like that. And I have to tell you, back when um, Biden was running against Donald Trump, you know, I have some friends that are Democrats and they just said, I can't vote for Trump, you know, for whatever reasons that they said, mainly because they're Democrats. And so they were talking about Joe Biden and they, they said, you know, hey, the reason I can vote for Biden is because he's like your grandfather. He's not going to do any harm to the country. He, he's just, you know, 
he's going to be like a placeholder for four years. And then we can just kind of move on from Trump and move on to the next, whoever the next leader of our country is going to be. And I was just like, well, you don't know how much damage that Joe Biden can do in four years. So what I have found, and this, I think this kind of started during COVID when watching TV, you're stuck at home. You can't really get out and do much. It was just a really terrible time in our country. So you're stuck in front of that stupid TV set for hours on end. I think that's when binge binge watching and all this streaming and stuff really took off. But I found myself sitting in front of the TV set and just going, you're stupid. You know, they, they would make a statement or they do something and it didn't matter if you were a Republican or a Democrat or liberal or a conservative. You, you just look at whatever it is they were doing and you just had to say to yourself, well, that's just stupid. You know, that makes no sense, no logic. There's no science behind this. You're an idiot. And so I, I constantly was finding myself doing this. So I thought I'd write down and, and have this little segment of, you know, your stupid segment, which is those things that have come up. And I and I just kind of really thought about this today of just putting down the things that just in the last few years that, you know, when I hear this on the news, you're just like, that can't be right. That, that just can't be what you're going to do. I mean, that's just stupid. And probably the first thing was when Biden was elected he followed through on one of his campaign promises, which is shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline. And I just, it made no sense to me whatsoever. And the thing that's unusual is the Keystone pipeline's already there. The Keystone XL was kind of like the next generation pipeline. And a lot of times what they do is they have these pipelines that are getting old, so they'll run another pipeline. And it's... It kind of makes sense to not run the pipeline down the same path. So if I'm going to have two pipelines, it's kind of like redundancy in a plane. You don't want to run all of your wires down the left side of the plane. Maybe you want to have half and then the redundant system down the right. So if your plane gets hit or whatever, you don't lose all your hydraulics. You know, that's why you have multiple hydraulic lines and things like that. So if you actually look at the map from the Keystone pipeline, it's already there going to Oklahoma and bringing down all kinds, I think it's about 300,000 barrels a day um, coming down from Canada. So we already have this connection. We already have this pipeline. So then they whacked the Keystone XL pipeline, which was going to increase capacity, run a little bit different route, but basically was going to have the same goal, which is to get Canadian oil into America, to our refineries. And come to find out, we were getting a big discount from Canada. We were buying our, our oil at a discounted price from Canada because of the pipeline and other reasons. So why would Biden whack the Keystone pipeline, uh, Keystone XL pipeline, which is the add-on new expansion to the pipeline, if we already have one there? So if you're saying that it's because of the environment, well, that's BS because there's already a pipeline there. If they were really interested in th that somehow this had some environmental impact, we should be digging up the current pipeline and stop using it. What about the Alaska pipeline? You know, what's the deal with that? It's been running forever without any major issues. So think about this about safety. So how many ships have we had hit reefs and all kinds of problems that have lost oil and dumped oil in the ocean? We've had a few. 
pipeline, you don't really have to worry about that. A pipeline is a stationary thing. They have all kinds of tests that they run. When they lose pressure, they shut it down, especially with all these gas pipelines that we have. When they lose pressure, they know when they sprung a leak, so they shut it down. And then they have things that they can run down through there to inspect the pipes. And there's all this safety stuff when it comes to pipelines to make sure that they're safe. But if you don't use a pipeline, what else are you going to do? It's basically down to two things. You're going to put it on semi-carriers, bad. So you're expending oil, gasoline, to transport oil. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Then there's trains. That's one of the number one way that we move these. Now, is that really safe? We're having all kinds of train derailments because we're not fixing up our infrastructure. And it can cause, we, we saw what had happened in Ohio where they had chemical spills and all kinds of stuff. So obviously transporting stuff on trains is not the best. So if you have, if you think about this logically, why would you shut down the Keystone XL pipeline? It's safer. It's better for the environment. It saves money. So why on earth would you shut it down? Because you're stupid. And Biden and his whole administration are flipping stupid. But they had a reason. It, they want fuel, to, um, gas prices to go up. They want it to be $10 a gallon so they can sell their agenda. So why would Biden do this? Who wins? Who, who's the big winners by shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline? First off, it's China. And I'm going to explain that right here in a second. And second, it's Warren Buffett, right? Is that right? Yep, Warren Buffett. Because he almost has a monopoly on all of these gas carrier um, train cars. So you know that Warren Buffett doesn't want it. So who's really running the country in a lot of these things? It's the billionaires. And so there was a deal made. You know, you need to shut this this, um, pipeline down because it's going to have a direct impact on my profitability um, with all these train cars. And who's the losers? Well, the losers are the American people and mainly the middle class. Rich people, it's not going to affect. doesn't matter. They're driving their Lamborghinis around. Poor people take mass transit for the most part, or they're driving old clunkers and they can't afford to drive that much. It's the middle class that this absolutely directly impacts, but they don't care. So what did what did Canada do? You would think that Canada would have gone berserk when the U.S. shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, but actually they didn't. The reason being is they'd already started another pipeline to Vancouver. They already had one there that was doing 300 um thousand barrels a day and now they're running a second one just like we're doing with the keystone xl they're doing the exact same thing with their trans mountain pipeline so they're running it right from the middle of all of their oil reserves to vancouver canada guess what puts it on the ocean guess who they're going to sell the oil to china so the other big winner in this is china because they're going to get tons of oil from canada Canada is a winner because they're going to charge more for the oil to China than they were for the U.S. So Canada really didn't lose. They're going to sell their fuel. It's like if you have a good product and one person doesn't want to buy it, but others do, it's all about supply and demand. And, you know, that's the whole deal. And one of the things I found interesting in, in doing my research was who's who's actually producing all the oil in the United States? And we have really clean oil. That's a that's a great statement about the fact that the Canadian oil is not, and their gas is not as clean as ours. 
our natural gas is probably the cleanest on the planet. And we refine it in the way that we do all this. It's very clean. I'm going to get to clean natural gas here in a second. But what I thought was interesting is the vast majority of oil in the United States still comes from Texas. Texas is king, not Alaska. In fact, Alaska is not even number two. Alaska is not even number three. Alaska is number four. And guess who's right behind them basically producing as much oil as Alaska? Colorado. Colorado is almost generating or producing, drilling, welling, whatever you want to call it, almost the exact same amount of oil every day that Alaska is. But we talk about these great reserves up in Alaska, but Colorado's almost producing as much as Alaska? How can that be? And how can North Dakota and New Mexico's number two, how can they be producing more than Alaska? Alaska's huge. We've been told that it has all these reserves. Well, that's because the federal government has kept this all reeled in. And plus, it's hard, you know, it's a lot harder to get to oil in Alaska than it is New Mexico. So, you know, the, the next thing. So let me let me get through some of these. I've I've only covered one of my your stupid maneuvers. And and I really think canceling the Keystone XL pipeline is just you're stupid. I don't care who you are, Republican, Democrat, it's just flipping stupid. So the second thing, banning gas stoves. This is high on my list of you're just flipping stupid. So you ban natural gas, which is one of the cleanest burning fossil fuels, if not the cleanest. We all know if you're a serious chef or cook, you know that natural gas cooks a lot better than electric. So I doubt you'll ever see that in New York City or whatever, these fancy restaurants converting to electricity. But but here's the problem with this. Where does electricity come from? And this is going to be on your stupid on electric cars, too. You, you know, you think, well, electricity is not fossil fuels. Well, guess what? You're stupid. Again, I get to say you're stupid because where do we we if you convert to electricity if you go back and you look right now we get natural gas is 38% of our electricity and coal 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 is 20% it's 20% so over 50% of our electricity is generated by fossil fuels hello so if you're just going to switch over to an electric stove it's ultimately coming from fossil fuels guess what you're stupid so all electric cars. California's got this big thing that they want to have all electric cars. Guess what? You're stupid. Now, I'm not going to say you're stupid for getting an electric car. If you want an electric car, go get yourself an electric car, but don't think you're helping the planet. You just want to go really, really fast and you think it's cool to be in a high-tech electric car, then go buy one. But if you don't even have solar panels on your house, then you're stupid. You're, you're If you think you're saving the planet, my next door neighbor has an electric car, but no solar panels. Solar panels. Hello, you're stupid. And here's the reason why. You're plugging it in every night and you're juicing it off of fossil fuels. If you want to go get an electric car, go for it. Put solar panels on the roof of your house. And here's the second reason why you need to do this. If you live in California and you have an electric car and you don't have solar panels that you can juice your car from, guess what? You're stupid. Because here's the reason why. Because California said that they're going to have something where they can turn off where you can't um, juice your car. So you go home at night and you think, hey, I'm saving the planet because I got an electric car. 
And then they tell you, well, we're having a brownouts today because we don't have enough electricity from our fossil fuels. So please don't charge your Teslas up and, and watch it. The government's going to get into this situation of I think one of the reasons they like electric cars is all about control because they can control the electricity. I can go to multiple gas stations and go get gas. I can hoard gas. I can save gas. You can't do that with electricity. There's not enough flipping batteries. And plus, you only get a range of like three, 400 miles at best. So there's a lot more control. And here's another reason why you're stupid, California, which is the stupidest state on the planet. They want to force all these electric cars on everybody. Hello, a lot of people in California don't have homes. They can't have solar panels. So you can have an apartment complex with 50 freaking chargers sitting out and everyone takes a spot and juices overnight. You're going to have people killing each other to get spots to juice their car so they can go to work the next day. Hello, guess what? You've just realized California is stupid and they can't do this. It's just with infrastructure, it's not doable. So again, you're stupid. So let's talk about military. I just love this. Oh, I didn't even talk about Anwar. Anwar is stupid too. This is an area that they want to drill in in Alaska for oil and Biden just made it pretty much off limits. So the government owns where is this, um, 223 million acres in Alaska, and they just want availability to 1.5 million acres, which is basically some very small number of the percentage of Alaska that they want to drill, and they want to leave the rest alone. So it's just stupid, you, you know, not letting them drill in this one little area that's rich in gasoline. It, it's no big deal. Let them, you know, drill, baby, drill. Who cares? You still have 222 million or whatever acres that, that you've set aside. So it's all good. So, so let's talk about the military. This is a thing that just cracks me up. The military wants to be completely, where is this? DOD mandated all branches convert their fleet of vehicles, of non-combat vehicles, to electric by 2035. Okay, you're stupid. Our, our military's stupid. You've got the limited range. It takes forever to juice it up. And, you know, one of the things I thought was really cool is when the Hummer came out, the Hummer could run on anything. They were talking about, man, you could almost put water in that thing and it would run on it. You could, it was like gasoline, any type of gasoline, alcohol would work. I think diesel would work, you know, and that's the thing about if you're, especially if you're in combat, if you have these vehicles, you're always trying to um, scavenge. That's not the right word. Scavenge everything that you can find. Well, how are you going to find electricity out on the battlefield? So this is just stupid. And they're talking about electric tanks. Hello, you're just massively stupid there. I mean, you're beyond stupid. So I laugh whenever I see there's one um, Tesla supercharger station right down the street from us at a, at a come and go. And there's always cars there. And it's interesting because Tesla will actually tell you and put you in a waiting line for juicing up your car. And here's what I think, especially when I'm getting older. My time is one of my most valued resources. I'm going to sit there for an hour and wait for my car to juice up when I can fuel it up in five and be on the way, be gone. So I've taken a completely different strategy when it comes to this stuff. I'm going low tech and old tech. The two last cars that I have purchased is a 2000, what is that thing? 2004, no, 2002, and a 1998 Suburban. It's a beast, and that's what I call it. Has a 42-gallon 
gas tank and I can run on regular gas, I can fuel that up and go 600 miles. So I, I laugh at these Teslas. It's so cost effective. I paid under $10,000 for this car. I could spend another 10 grand, have the whole engine. I could buy a crate engine for that and get a brand new engine for it. My taxes are are dang near nothing. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm all against this stuff. But here, just to finish this up, and let's get John St. Augustine in here, and we'll start talking about interesting stuff. Here's the other stuff that I think is stupid, but I just don't have time to talk about. The southern border is secure. You're just stupid. Defund police. How's that working out? You're just stupid. Cashless bail. Stupid. Deficit spending. Just stupid. So all these things are just massively stupid. And and I may from time to time bring up stuff that I just find hilariously just stupid. So let's move on to the real good part of this. And we're going to be talking for the rest of the time with John St. Augustine. So bring them on. And this is what I'll tell you for the for the people that are that are actually here. I have the message stuff set up here in the, the meeting chat. And I can see that there's some people monitoring and stuff on Zoom. And thank you for doing that. And there is a phone number where you can call in. And if you call in, that's great. Here, I can throw out the number too. I got it right here. 1-800, no, that's not 1-800. It's 888-627-6008. Here's the key. I want you to ask questions of John. And I said on Wednesday that John is the most knowledgeable person when it comes to the, the John Benet homicide. So he, he may go, what? You said what? Ask him any question that you want. We're going to just going to be discussing that and some other cases that we've worked on here recently. So is John, is he in the mix? Is he there? I think we're popping up. There's John wearing his UCCS sweatshirt where he teaches at um, the prestigious University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. God's country, as I call it. So, so John, I mean, everybody knows about the John Bonet homicide, but just kind of lay out not so much about the actual homicide at this point, but just everything that's transpired, it's what is it? It's almost been like 25 years or whatever since this happened. In 27 years this December. So for those of you that don't know what happened with John Bonet, um, back on December 26 of 1996, um, mom essentially wakes up. Uh, they were planning on going on a Disney cruise. And she wakes up, goes down the spiral staircase, and there's 6,700 square feet Tudor home there on the hill in Boulder, Colorado, uh, 755 15th Street. Um, so what happens is she wakes up, she walks down the stairs, she sees three pieces of paper kind of laid out across the step, and she begins to read it. And it basically says that it's a ransom note that says that they have their daughter. Uh, fast forward a couple hours, um, and the reason why I'm fast forwarding is in the ransom note, it said that between 8 and 10 in the morning, there would be a call. Well, Boulder police had searched the home already, had allowed the family to stay in the home. And uh, what ends up happening is a detective by the name of Linda Arndt comes on scene. She then tells John Ramsey and a friend by the name of Fleet White to go look for things out of the ordinary. And so John Ramsey at some point uh, walks to the basement, opens a door that law enforcement did not open and ends up seeing his six-year-old little girl um, dead. Um, he picks her up, carries her upstairs, and that's what began the uh, John Bonet Ramsey murder investigation. So, you know, probably over a thousand items were collected, Mark, during the course of this investigation. 
Over 2,500 leads um, were generated as a result of the investigation. And, you know, the the initial investigation, without going into all the details, um, really focused on the family. And the reason why it focused on the family was they primarily, the media was releasing that there was a lack of footwear impressions in the snow. And so because there was this lack of footwear impressions in the snow, that the the killer or killers had to have come from inside the home. And so that narrative kind of carried its way through not only news or, you know, news um, outlets in Colorado, but throughout the state, throughout the country, throughout the world. And so all of a sudden, right, beauty queen, six-year-old little girl, you know, daughter of, um, you know, an affluent uh, man and John Ramsey and his beauty queen wife and Patsy Ramsey, that they were the killers of their daughter. And so this case, you know, essentially, you know, from about that time in 96 till, oh gosh, at least 2008-ish, the focus has always been on the family. And so, um, you know, slowly the pendulum has swung because of new uh, DNA techniques um, that have revealed that the DNA that was found under John Bonet's fingernails and in her underwear were not from anybody in the family. And so that compounded with just when you look at the scene, there were a lot of things that just, you know, stood out, right? Things like she was stun gunned twice, uh, once to the right side of her face, once to her back. Um, she was strangled. She was sexually assaulted. She was beat over the head with some blunt object um, after death. So it was post-mortem. And none of it really added up that a, you know, that a mom or dad, much less, you know, the the craziness of a nine-year-old boy um, doing this murder never really added up. And so the family, which is, you know, odd here, right? Because typically if a family has never been prosecuted for a case and they're the main focus of an investigation, uh, kind of like, you know, your O.J. Simpson case, um, there's not a whole lot of effort made by the family to really attempt to find the the killers of of, of you know, their loved one. In this particular case, I can tell you that John and Patsy Ramsey um, have made, you know, many efforts to try to get to the bottom of this. In fact, even more recently, trying to persuade the governor's office, Governor Polis, to force some type of review of the evidence in, in the Boulder Police Department and have these items tested for DNA. Um, and the reason for that, right, Mark, you're aware of this, and you know we can look, you know, across the country. We're gaining a lot of success in testing old evidence items. Um, if you look at what happened in California with the Golden State Killer, you know they were able to find that uh, I believe his name was D'Angelo. He was a former cop who was involved in a number of murders in in California, but it was based on DNA that they were able to finally capture him. And so, you know, we know that DNA um, has, you know, really grown over the years to a point where now it should be a part of every law enforcement's toolkit. And if there is evidence that's in a facility that has not been tested, that that evidence should be tested. Because at the end of the day, right, I mean, so if you find DNA that matches the family, right, if it's not explainable, then, you know, you should still keep them under your umbrella of suspicion. But you know, when you've only focused on the family for probably the last 27 years, you know, and especially, you know, the, the the main issue you're dealing with right now is there's still a lot of police officers 
who were there in 1996 that are now in, in a senior part, senior management of the Boulder Police Department. So they still have some influence as to what's being done there in Boulder. Yes, they answer to a chief, but you know, you have a chief who probably doesn't know a whole lot about the case. They're going to defer that case to somebody who maybe has been around and knows more about it. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why this case to this day has has is still unsolved is that law enforcement has dropped the ball. They they essentially have dropped the ball. Um, they have not tested, you know, all the items. They have not reviewed this case with the mindset that anybody could have done this murder. And in fact, you know, I would tell you that there's probably still a, a general thought that the Ramses in some way were involved in the murder of their daughter. And, you know, again, right, you have to look at the evidence. That's all we have, right? That as law enforcement officials, you're a fact gatherer. You 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 gather evidence, right? You, you collect it, you preserve it. Um, and then you have somebody else maybe analyze it and interpret it. And that process has not happened. And that's why we're, we are where we are today. Um, so hopefully, right, the, the, the thought here is that, um, you know, I think the Colorado Bureau of Investigation has put together a, a team of individuals that um, have law enforcement experience, and at least that's what they're saying, that um, is looking at different cold cases throughout the state. Um, cases like, you know, I'm sure the Morphew case that came up more recently was probably reviewed by these guys. Um, the Jomini Ramsey case, I'm sure, is on their radar if they haven't already looked at it. But, you know, this is not a case where you can have somebody looking, looking at it part-time. Um, you have to have resources dedicated to investigating this, especially because, you know, almost three decades later, right, you're, 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 you're way behind the, the power curve as far as getting caught up to speed on the case. And there's just so many parts of this case that, um, you know, unless you were part of the initial investigation, it'll be very difficult for somebody to pick it up and try and make heads or tails as to what the case is about. Does that make sense, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I will tell you that typically once a project is thrown to a cold case investigator or group or whatever, it's really up to the integrity of the individuals in that group. Because it's it's easy to to be like a cold case detective and not do much. <laughs> and We've so you've got to have that. Yeah. You got to be kind of self-motivated. Like, you know, I was a detective for 10 years. I never worked on cold cases. Well, from the standpoint, never officially. So I was already always driven by a supervisor to say, Hey, do this, do this work. Here's another case. Here's another case. Cold cases. You just don't get that much. And typically it's all about re-investigating and taking a very narrow, you know, now we're going to look at this for a while and look at this for a while. So it's very slow and tedious work. But in this case, you know, they have all this DNA or not DNA, but they have all these items that they have. Th th this is just like a no brainer. You know, why wouldn't you test this? And about every week or two, you see something on the national news where somewhere they went back and retested something on a cold case and got DNA and solved it 25, 30 years later, you know, that it was the next door neighbor or whatever. And in this case, it just seems like there's no urgency from Boulder PD or this group or whatever to test these numerous items. 
to try to see if they can get DNA off of these things. And all they're doing is getting- Mark, you give me one second. I actually want to read a report to you that I think would be very fitting for our conversation. It's literally about five feet away. So just give me a second. You go get it. I don't have any idea what I'm going to talk about while while he's running no, 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 away. It's and... right here. I wanted to. <laughs> um, I have it. I, when you were bringing that up, I wanted to share with you an example of of how poor the investigation has been from you know the onset. And um, so, what I'm going to read to you is a report from 2008, and this is from Bodhi Technology, which was a a lab that did some of the um, some of the analysis. And so they, so the Boulder uh, district attorney's office sent five items to be examined by the Bodhi technology DNA lab. These five items were um, the ligature from her neck, a broken paintbrush handle, ligature from her wrist, a Wednesday in quotes, um, panties, and then a white long underwear bottom. So there were five items, Mark, that were submitted for analysis. And if you look at the last page of the report, actually the second page where they give a summary, here's what is just mind-blowing to me. It says, it is known that the victim was wearing this item that I was explaining to you, the bottoms, the long john bottoms the night of the crime. Therefore, it is expected that the victim would be present in the samples associated with it. Assuming the victim, JonBenet Ramsey, is a contributor, the remaining DNA contribution is provided in table two. Based on the results, it is likely more than two people contributed to the mixtures observed in these, in these items. So they knew there was a mixture, but here's the kicker. Here's what doesn't make any damn sense. In note number two, this examiner, who's a DNA analyst from Bodhi Technologies, writes this. The samples from the ligature from her neck, the broken paintbrush handle, the ligature from her wrist, and the Wednesday panties were not processed at this time. Think about that, Mark. You submitted five items for analysis. They only return one, and they don't tell you about anything about the other four items that are all around John Bonet Ramsey. I mean, this poor little girl was strangled to death with a garrote. Ligature from her neck. Why wouldn't you test that? The broken paintbrush handle used to strangle her. Why didn't you right. test test that? Ligature from her wrist. Why didn't you test that? Her underwear. Why didn't you test that? This is a 2008 report, a 2008 report that was never, I mean, you're looking at something here where you're like, what, who's on first base? You're right. Who's so on first that, base? Would, would that fit into my segment, you're stupid? Um, that would fit into the segment of incompetency at its highest level. That's right. what it would fit into. All right. Hey. We've got a question. Go for it. Hey, Mark. Hey, uh, John. Um I don't, I, I mean, listen to it religiously, obviously. First thing, was it, well, first off, Patsy was just weird. That interview with her, it just wasn't right. And I would say that most cops, Mark, when you come on a scene and there's a murder or something, you in your gut know something's up. You just know. And unless you're dealing with a psychopath, 
um, you just know. So is it true that this, the boy, what's his name? Uh, Boot, Drow, what the hell was his Burke, name? Burke, Burke is his name. Burke. Yes, sir. Was it true that he wiped back his excrement all over his room while the no. cops were there interviewing? Is that true? No. 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 It wasn't See, true? Okay. That, no. See, and that's the problem, right, is that there's been a narrative that's been, you know, driven by the media. And, you know, yes, you know, I've been to a lot of murder scenes. Mark and I work together as cops. And I can tell you that, yes, you do have, you know, somewhat of a of a feeling of things that may be, you know, just odd, you know, their their behavior may be odd. And and sometimes, right, the thing is that you, the danger here is that you can't allow somebody's behavior to drive your investigation. What has to drive your investigation is evidence, right? So that's true. But yeah. but let me just say this to you. So sure. forgetting here and that, um, and yes, I listened to all this crap, and God knows where it came from. But was it true that John Ramsey had taken stuff to the airplane or something, and the pilot? Yeah. Uh, is that no, any of that true? No. no? So okay. here's here's yeah here's the difficulty in that right is that when the murder happened the family was allowed to move around the scene, which that is a, that is an error on law enforcement's behalf. Right. The first thing you're trained in, in cop 101 in the basic police Academy is that you have to know how to secure a crime scene and securing the crime scene means that you have to remove the parties from within the crime scene and you have to ensure that nobody enters the crime scene. So that's part of establishing an inner and outer perimeter. And so one of the biggest failures in this case was that they allowed the family to stay in the home and essentially invite right. people, you know, friends and family to come to the home. Well, that is your crime scene. And so, you know, just like right. I was mentioning about somebody going in and telling them, right, Linda aren't saying, go look for things out of the ordinary. That would never be done by any yeah. other law enforcement agency in this country Did because that's our responsibility. That's what, not the responsibility. Was her body covered by John or was it covered by whatever? Was, was it covered the body by what? I'm sorry. The body was covered with a sheet or something. Yes, there, was a, there was a sheet and some tape that was um, over her body. Isn't yes. that unusual? If so, would I? Okay, so isn't it true that so they they had said at the time, or one of the experts said, well, if you know the victim, then you tend to feel guilty and you tend to cover it up or whatever. If you're just uh, if you're just there brutalizing, you don't care. You leave. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe we read too much into the behavior. I just don't know. And then I think you'd have to agree that Alex Hunter, I mean, even though the cops dropped the ball and I don't even get that. I, I, you know, the OJ Simpson thing, and I'm just going off of what we've seen on TV sure. and that sure. they went through that. They did everything right. Pretty much. I, I mean, except for the cop taking the shoes home and, you know, there were some things, but, um, Personally, I think they should have left, left Mark Furman. Like, I think when you guys do a crime, okay, this was the first cop on the scene. What did you see? Here's the second cop. And that's how the testimony goes down. You don't wait till the end of the trial to put the second cop or third cop that was on the scene, which I think Mark Furman was probably right. He, he, it wasn't a stiletto. It was a Swiss Army knife or something. You know, it didn't have to be a 16-inch blade. But all I'm saying is, is there's an organized way of doing things to where stuff doesn't get screwed up in trial. And then you let a defense attorney go to town on you with all this yeah. mess. I don't, I don't know. So in your gut, John, just tell me, was, was uh -huh. it an intruder or not? 
I do. I believe it was an intruder. Yes, sir. You do. Okay. And I do. And I do. And I, and the reason I base that is not on behavior. I base it on the evidence that was obtained from the scene. That's well, the, I'll be damned. Yes, sir. I'll be damned. Yeah. And, and, and actually, John, after I finish this statement, mm-hmm. um, there definitely, there definitely is evidence of an intruder. And I'm going to let John explain that. But, okay. I'm going to get off things, the unmute, mute guys. Yeah. I'll unmute no. <laughs> But one of the things I do want to address is how people react. And one of the things I did at the sheriff's office when I was a detective, and I think they did it because they knew that I was a compassionate person that could relate to people. I had to give a lot of death notifications. I had to tell parents that their kid had just committed a suicide by stepping in front of a train, actually laid down on the tracks. So I've had to tell parents that their kids aren't coming home. I've had to tell spouses that, you know, their, their, their spouse is not coming home and, I would tell you this about grieving. Um, everybody's a little bit different. And I've had some people, that, I mean, we know they're not suspects. I mean, this is, you know, the people died in other fashion. People act in weird ways. I, I had, I'll, I mean, I'll never forget. I told the woman that her husband died in a plane crash and she was more concerned about me. I just told her, she didn't even know her husband went flying. He didn't tell her. You know, she went off to work and he decided to go flying and ended up dead. So I'm waiting for her when she gets home. And I tell her, I said, yeah, you know, your husband decided to go flying today. And she goes, well, why would they send a cop over to tell me, you know, that he went flying? I'm, well, there's more to talk about. And and then I had to explain to her and she goes, you know, that much of, must have really been difficult for you to tell me that my husband's dead. And I think, well, you know, why are you worried about me? You, you know, I just told you your husband's dead. And I've had others that I that I told, you know, and they went crazy. And then I've had everything in between. So I can definitely tell you, having worked on, and John's worked on more homicides than I have. I have. I've worked on over 80 homicides during my career. I will tell you, people just act different. And some, you're just going, what in the hell is motivating them? And and others, you can see where they're like, okay, that's what I expect. I expect you to, to act this way. Well, everyone's a little different. So Patsy and John, how they acted um, when they were confronted, that's their way. So, but you have to follow the facts and that's the key. So John, why don't you go through, take a couple minutes here and explain what evidence there was showing that there was an intruder and possibly more than one. Yeah. I mean, you have, you know, unidentified footwear impressions where her body was found. They don't match anybody in the family. They don't match anybody in law enforcement. Um, You know, she was stun gunned twice, once in the face and once in the back. If you're going to kill your daughter, I mean, you know, we've we've dealt with kid deaths in our careers. Um, not that we've seen all of them, you know, that we can we can speak to all of them. Excuse me, but what I can tell you is that, you know, it's it's you know it, it's 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 seldom that they're going to uh, put together things like I'm going to stun gun my daughter twice, okay, then I'm going to sexually assault her. And then I'm going to strangle her. And then after she's dead with a garrote, right, using a garrote, I'm going to beat her over the head with the force of a 70 mile an hour automobile crash. It was over. She had a fracture over two occipital lobes. And then I'm going to write a ransom note. And then I'm going to call the police. And then the police are going to come. And by luck, they're not going to search the one room, the one door that should have been open. Right. And then I'm going to have the police actually tell me to go look for things out of the ordinary. So, you know, to that last listener, 
you know, when I look at this, yes, you know, you, you do have to have behavior is, is a very, very small piece of the equation. What we have to rely on as law enforcement officials are the facts, right? Whether it be DNA, whether it be some type of forensic evidence, whether it be blood evidence, whether it be, you know, ballistic evidence, whether in this particular case, evidence of a strangulation, because the actual manner of death is homicide and the cause of death is strangulation. It wasn't because of the blunt force trauma to her head. That happened after she died. So you got to look at all of these things. And then, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint, you got to say, okay, what, how did this, how did this go down from a timeline perspective? So you're looking at when was the victim last seen alive? When was the victim found dead or deceased? And what happened in between? And can we fill this void with evidence? And the more that we can fill that with evidence, the better, the, the more indication we're going to have as to who may have been responsible for the murder of John Bonet. And what I what I'm going to tell the last listener um, is that there's there's so many things in this middle area that were never completed, never looked right. into. And that's why 27 years later, we still have a case out of Boulder, Colorado that is still unsolved and still garnering a lot of national and international attention because you know, the background of it, right? A beauty queen daughter, a beauty queen mom, an affluent dad, right? In in middle America, right? In an affluent community on the hill in a college town. It, it makes for a great story. And it's made for a great story since December 26 of 1996 until today. Yeah. And one of the things that I really want to make sure people understand is the Boulder police lied. They just straight up lied. If, and, and John, correct me if I've got this wrong, because they released that they didn't believe it could be an intruder because there was snow all the way around the house and they would have seen snow footprints in the snow. So it couldn't have been an intruder. And then when you look at the crime scene photos, that's total BS. They lie. There's a, the, the place where they know that there could have been um, ingress and regress or whatever, you know, whatever the term is through the basement window and they know that that grate was lifted it's obvious you can tell there's no snow there it's obvious that entry was made through that window and then what's interesting is these windows on kind of older houses the windows are up high and a lot of times in basements now they they dig out that whole um, window well and they have a little ladder where you can go up which is you know regulation that you have to have that back then that wasn't the case so that's easy to get in because when you get in this window that's up high, you just drop down to the basement floor. But then when it's time to get out, you're like, oh, crap. Now what do I do? Because that window's kind of up high and I'm not as strong as some of these guys on the movies. So there's actually a piece of luggage that's there's there an next actual, to the There's window. an actual luggage. There's there yeah, is yeah, a, that, luggage yep, right up against the yeah, wall. Yeah, they put it there so they can step on that to get back out the window. But Boulder PD never mentions this and makes the suggestion to the media from almost freaking day one, this had to be an inside job. Right. And, you know, and then they made, you know, future errors by releasing the ransom note. Like, why would you do that? There was no reason to, to release that note. You know, the specifics in the note, you know, you want to keep that, you know, confidential so that as you're investigating this, you can see whether, you know, whoever's responsible for this, if they wrote the note, you know that it's never been released 
that if they can give you specifics about the note, you're probably dealing with somebody who's fairly what credible, right? And that's the that's right. the key when you wrote the note. Witnesses. That's right. When you're looking right. at suspects now, right outside of DNA, there's been so many things that have been released about this case that now really the the integrity of the case um, has been compromised. And so DNA happens to be the one thing left that I think may help to to identify a suspect in this case. So to, to the best of your knowledge, John, and you've been working on this, I mean, basically from the time you were retained by the Ramseys till now, you're still dabbling into this. So they have not tested the ligature around her neck. There was a paintbrush handle that was broken. Mm-hmm. And then that was used by the garage to tighten it. Well, mm-hmm. so, so it would be like this fashion, right? You would twist it. Is Something. Right? So it's a, it's. So there was one part that goes around her neck, and then you have another thing that kind of controls that, that pressure on the neck. Right, but, but is it controlled by your hands, right? You, well, no, it's, it's you can by your have, hands. Right. You, you, you control it with your hands, yes. So, so if it's controlled by the perpetrator's hands. Correct. And let's say he doesn't have gloves on. Correct. You know, there's a good chance there's there's DNA on the garrote, on the, the ligature, on that paintbrush that was snapped. You, you right. know, all this stuff, the panties, I mean, seriously, you didn't even test the panties. Right. I mean, talk about incompetence. Do you really think Boulder PD is actually interested in solving this case? You know, I hope that the new the new chief is, um, you know, I mean, this has been a black eye on on law enforcement in Boulder. And to be honest with you, it's been a black eye on anybody who's who's been associated with the case in any way in trying to prosecute just the family. And the reason why it's been a black eye is because there's been so many things that haven't been done that if it were to be done, could actually point to a killer or killers. And that's, you know, that's what you hope for, right? That, you know, that a new administration comes in um, and actually has a fresh set of eyes, because I'll be honest with you, you know, my opinion is a little jaded because of my involvement from the very beginning. And so you know, fresh eyes looking at the case will not hurt it. And to be honest with you, I think it, it would be good for the case, just like it would be good to have DNA retested, right? Or or items that have never been tested to be tested. Like what's the harm in that being being accomplished? Right. There, there is How no can harm. It, hurt? it would not hurt but at I, all. I, I just get the feeling that Boulder would be so embarrassed, you know, once it comes out that, hey, we got DNA from a total stranger, which they already basically have because you said it was a mixture of probably more than one person. I'll right. never forget year, years after um, the John Bonet homicide, I was in a training class up in Denver and there was a detective there from a female detective from Boulder PD. I never got her name, um, really wasn't interested. So I don't know how many female investigators they had. But I remember being in the break room um, during a break and just talking to her. And I said, you know, hey, you know, what's up with the whole John Bonet thing? And this is years after this. She goes, yeah, it's a real shame the parents got away with murder. Well, I mean, so you still had that mindset, whether she worked on the case or not, I don't have a clue. But it was that whole mindset. And I know I was told, that the cops in Boulder have been straight up told, even to this day, that they do not talk about this homicide, period. Which it's to me, I mean, you, you, somebody needs to talk about it because something right. needs to be done. You know, that, I mean, it's, it's the cases where it's at because of that kind of mindset. 
you know, that the family did it. Nobody else could have done it. And therefore, you know, we're going to, you know, we're just going to kind of stay, stay down that track. We're not going to look outside of this. And that's the first mistake. One, one of the first mistakes in law enforcement, like we've said from the beginning, is follow the facts. And and I think we've gotten a pretty good um Oh, kind of an overall, you know, now that we both worked for numerous years in investigations at a major agency here in Colorado, and now we work predominantly for defense, but we'll work for whoever wants to get to the truth. And, you know, it's just amazing sometimes how you can see district attorneys, detectives or whatever that are so focused on the end justifies the means that, you know, this is a bad person. We need to put them in prison. I've seen them taint interviews. I mean, we've we've seen this. There was a case up in Weld County where they brought in an individual and said, hey, you know, did you hear about this jailhouse talk where this guy said he was going to um, wanted to kill the DA of Weld County? And the guy's like, no, I have no clue what you're talking about. And then they bring him in again later on. He's like, no, nah, I don't really know what you guys are talking about. Then he comes in the third time and then he spills the beans, just miraculous on the third time. But in the second interview, they tell him exactly what they, so you're telling me you don't know that this individual actually said that he wanted to do X, Y, and Z. You don't know anything about that? And he's like, no. But later on, he comes back and goes, yeah, I knew that he said X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, when you tell somebody what you want, and I've seen these interviews tainted like that, where they're saying, in fact, I saw another interview where they actually told uh, the mother of an alleged victim that, look, this is a really bad guy. I can't go into specifics, but this is a bad guy. And right. then when I actually looked, he had no criminal history. He had right. zero criminal history. The only thing that he could slate on the fact that this was a bad guy was because he was a homosexual. So this cop is telling them, but hey, I can't get into detail, but this is a really bad guy who needs to go to prison. And we need you and your son's help in putting this guy into prison right. and come to find out there, there'd never been any crime, but the cop, you know, they can play these games because they're so focused, you know, that this guy did it. This guy had to have done it, that they miss the evidence that's right in front of them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, this case, you know, what you hope for Mark is, that there is a new, you know, a new set of eyes on this case that they go back and they examine the evidence and, you know, test whatever needs to be tested or can be tested for DNA. You know, hopefully that this report from 08, right, March 24th of 08, um, hopefully that's not a reflection of, of a lot of the evidence. But I will tell you, I mean, that was 12 years after the murder and right. nobody's raising any stink about why is it that there was only one item tested when you had five in, in items that were submitted and there's not an explanation on the notes as to why nothing was done so um you know that's that's why this case is where it's at i think you know you've got a department that has been committed to the the thought process that it was done by the family and they haven't looked anywhere else and there's a danger in that right i mean you know, think about it. I mean, how many cases have we been involved in where maybe we had an inkling that somebody might've been involved in and come to find out they weren't, um, you know, because the evidence right. didn't support it. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember, Mark, there was a drug deal that happened down in security Widefield, 
And there was a, there was a guy who was murdered when he came to the door. I don't know if you remember this case, but he, the, the guy used the killer used a shotgun and literally blew his ear off and it, and it landed on this reason why I remember it is the part of his ear landed on a fireplace. So what happened was right after that murder happened, some drug um, member, some, some people who bought drugs from this, this victim had actually walked into the home immediately right. after this shooting, even though they weren't responsible for the shooting. And so they you had got one actually, minute done. They had GSR on them. And I don't know if you remember, but they had GSR on them. And, and everybody thought they were the ones responsible for the murder, but yet they weren't. The killer was actually somebody else. And they just happened to go in there to rip off the drugs. So, so, yeah, it's just an example. Man, time went by fast, Mark. Thank you. Right. And and, and actually, I want to talk about some other stuff other than John Bonet, but we spent all of our time on John Bonet. And we could, we literally could talk for the next three hours specifically on John Bonet and all the screw ups from the Boulder PD and, and everything that they did wrong. And, right. and I found from a long time ago, you know, being in law enforcement and other um, positions that I've had, if you make a mistake, just admit it. Own it. Own it. Start back start back to zero and say, you know what? We're going to start over. We're not going to assume the parents did this. And we're going to do a reinvestigation and from scratch. Yep. But but that's all the time we have. We'll have to make sure that, that Chuck and Julie take another vacation on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday so we can come back in and talk some more. We have tons more cases that we could talk about, the, the Tom Clements and others. But we, we've got to get out of here. So everybody have a great, fantastic weekend. And hopefully you'll see John and I in the near future. Have a great weekend. Thank you.